Hey guys, this is Saba Long, the host of Where the Party At, your favorite political podcast. I'm so excited to bring back our series, Who Runs Atlanta, where we are featuring this time the at-large candidates for the Atlanta School Board. There are five candidates and we've got all five doing interviews with us. Take a listen to these interviews and make sure you make an informed choice to vote on or before November 7th. Nkoyo F. Young Lewis. Did I get that right? You did. Welcome to the pod. Thank you. Great to have you here on Where the Party At. We are doing a series called Who Runs Atlanta, where we're interviewing the at-large candidates for the Atlanta Public School Board. It's a big election. Not a lot of people know about it, and we want to do our part to help uh, raise awareness. So before I get into the who are you, why are you running, you've got your shirt on with a lot, some info there, so we'll ask you about that. (laughs) Um, First, I want to just ask you something, some questions for a series we're calling how Atlanta are you? Now, I don't know if you're an Atlanta native. If you're not, that's okay. But I do know you have two children, two young children. Is that right? Three total. Three two total. Young, yep. Three total and two young. Okay. So thinking back on when the oldest was young and now you've got, you have two already that are young. What do you think of as like the place in Atlanta that reminds you is like, this is the perfect place for kids? Oh, man. So I would say, one, the park. I won't be slipping on the park, but, like, that's just a... Regular park you like? We like them all. We just try to get around to different ones. It's it's fascinating because, uh, especially with my little kids, like, I mean, if you have a hill with grass, like, they will they entertain themselves. <laughs> yeah. They will run up it. They will, yeah. you know, they'll have a great time. Uh, loving the Children's Museum. Kids absolutely love that space. Definitely really, really enjoy that space. And then we actually just went to Boo at the Zoo last weekend, which I think is about to be a vibe. My youngest loves animals. And so she was really into seeing all the things. My son, uh, who's in the middle there, he was, you know, more there for the candy. But I think that they were actually the playground over there also. Yeah. <laughs> and that the is train a nice was a big, <laughs> was a big hit. So I think those are the two places that I would say right now, the Children's Museum and Zoo Atlanta. Okay. So when you're at the zoo, what's that animal that you're like, keep me away from it? I don't rock with it. <sighs> Be honest, those reptiles, like, I'm just... We keep avoiding it, actually. We did go in and saw all the turtles. Uh, My family's Nigerian by origin, and so my mom is a storyteller, and she was with us, and she has a a book about turtles. Ikut is what you call it in Efik, which is the tribe that we're from. And so it was really cool to see my kids go over there and, like, find the turtles. But my son was definitely interested in the other types of reptile type, and I was like, let's go find the lions. (laughs) (laughs) Got it. Um, let's see. What's, what's another Atlanta kids question? Um, what book do you like to read young kids? Oh, there are so many. Oh goodness. So we have been really, 
act, of course, my like mind is completely going to blank on the stories. Like, we read to our kids every single night, but now I'm like, <laughs> what are the names of the books? <laughs> um, so, for my example, for my daughter right now, we're reading Curls. We're also reading Hair Love. I know that's a banned book, which is totally wild because it's such a wow. book about appreciation. That's a for book like that's hair. banned in the state of Georgia or banned where? You know, I don't actually know exactly what state it okay. is banned in, but it definitely was one that was read during the banned books um, okay. week that uh, the it. different organizations have gone on. And I was like, that's insane. Like, we, it's a really nice book about yeah. just like loving your hair. So we've read that. And then there are a couple of books that are just about black boy joy and like affirmations that we read with my son also. So. Of course, I can't remember the titles yeah. of either of those right now, but right. Um, those are also some good books that we like to read. Got it. And if you could wave a magic wand and do one thing to make Atlanta centered around kids, what would that be? Wow, I would... I'm going to cheat and say two things. One, I would ask all of us here in Atlanta to remember what our childhood was like, what things we enjoyed about it, what things that we didn't, and to pour in in the resources, time, and energy into the things that made our childhood something that was, you know, the, the highlights of our childhood and really invest in and around those things and the structures that allow kids to be kids. Got it. Uh, that is a wrap for how Atlanta are you but the kids edition the last time when we did this we would ask people like about Atlanta songs places but we wanted to make this more kid oriented yeah um so I want to get a little bit more into who you are why you're running for office uh, what your vision is but first let me start with something that you just brought up is childhood um so tell me what was your favorite childhood memory in school Oh, man. I love this question because I'm fortunate to have a lot of really favorite childhood memories. I am number four of five. So I have three older sisters, one younger sister. And I remember one summer, uh, my mom had planned all these different events and everybody sort of had their activity based on what they needed. So I had a sister who needed more support with math. And she was doing like some math type of camp thing with another one of my sisters who needed a little bit more support with reading. And so they had more academic related type of activities that they had. My oldest sister and I, um, we had, we like went to the movies and like different like little things like that. But I just loved that there was an opportunity for my mom to be able to put us each in activities that really sort of connected us with the things that we like. Fast forward, she probably didn't realize that, like, sending me to a camp to watch movies meant that I would go to undergrad and get a degree in, like, kind of watching TV. Um, and so, like, those things just sort of stacked on each other. But I distinctly remember one night, I don't know where my parents were. They were great parents. Let me, let me be careful. <laughs> it was a different time. You could, like, leave your kids. My oldest sister is 10 years older than me. So, you know, we had an age span. But I remember being out at night playing um, with the neighbors across the street like running back and forth, like just having a great time and like never once questioning whether I was going to be safe or if there was any type of issue, never once thinking my parents weren't going to be back or anything like that. There was just a freedom in childhood to be and exist. Um, 
and hang out with my sisters and the neighbors and just like find adventure, lean into the things that we liked and enjoyed. I, I tell people all the time, I, I am really actually a nerd. So I read a lot. And I think there were also like library trips and I had like a bag that I would like fill up with all these books and go to the library, um, come back and read them, read them to my younger sister. And so for me, a lot of what I think about in childhood is like spending time with my sisters, my neighbors, just out being able to exist um, without really understanding a lot of the societal barriers or things that my parents were figuring out how to to fight and navigate as immigrants to this country um, that I just was never aware of because you were being a kid. I got to be a kid. And how does that childhood experience translate and impact how you would approach uh, being on the school board? Yeah. I think one thing that we don't always, we recognize, but we don't always necessarily really acknowledge is that our kids spend a lot of time in school. Like I think right now, you know, I have children, um, they're at school, you know, they spend a lot of time there. They are there in the morning, drop them off early or on time for if it's a good day, <laughs> you know, and then I pick them up, they go to aftercare, they do all those types of things. So they spend a lot of time in that environment. And I don't know that we always think about how we protect childhood in that environment. Uh, regardless of where our kids grow up, what their home life looks like, there is an opportunity to create space in our buildings where they can feel safe, secure, free to be kids. And I think that that impacts the way I think about how we want to talk about policies like school discipline and what that means when we're excluding a child often for making a mistake or not making a great decision and how we create space where they don't have to be removed from a setting um, or if they are, that there's place for them to come back. I think about that. I used to coach teachers um, before I became an attorney and I had a great teacher. Um, she was in Fulton County, taught third grade. And she used to say to me, you know, and Koyo, like, for some of my kids, this is the only place where they get to be kids. And, like, we see it, you know, Monday they come in, they're sort of hardened and, you know, distant, I guess, for lack of a better word. And by Friday, you know, like, you know, through the week, we see them sort of relax and come into the space and the routine of that and the community that's there. And then, you know, Friday goes to dismissal. We see behaviors go up and things like that. And she was like, what I realized is they're leaving for some of them what is the 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 cocoon of childhood for them and they're going back to face really adult matters that they'll have to take care of or deal with over a weekend. And so I think it's thinking about as a board member for all of us who are part of this system what it feels like to be in our schools. I have definitely as a parent advocating for a child who's neurodiverse walked into school buildings where it was clear people didn't want me there. They were not excited to see me. Um, it was hostile. I've had people say things that were, you know, not welcoming. And so I think as a board member, one of the things that's really important for me is that we're designing a system that is welcoming, that is engaging, and that treats people with dignity, regardless of their circumstance or how they come to us. What would you think is most broken in APS right now? Trust. Can you elaborate? I think that as a school system, we've created a promise. We've entered into a contract. That's the me for lack of a better term, 
with the community and we haven't delivered on it. And we haven't always been honest about acknowledging where the system itself has fallen short. And I think it's easy sometimes to point the finger and blame when we need families that are more engaged. We need our teachers to do X, Y, and Z versus saying, hey, we're all in here. We all probably have places where we could improve, but like as a system, we're not delivering what we need to be delivering. And people feel that. Um, I have for almost seven years represented families in education matters. Um, I've also been a, a facilitator for the state with IEPs. They have IEP facilitation program. What is IEP just for folks? Sorry. Yeah. That? So IEPs are individualized education plan or program. Um, they are prepared for students who meet federal standards and classifications for special education services. Um, but I've, I've had, and they, you know, they're, there's a lot of protections and, and process that comes in around that that actually requires the school and the family to sort of work together. But what I have found in a lot of the conversations when people are coming to me looking for representation, when I was facilitating those meetings between schools and families, is that something not great happened. Somebody dropped the ball. Like, that's honestly what happened. Um, and then it's like, we're just going to dust it over, pretend like it didn't happen and move forward and ask people to trust us the next time. But a lot of times our families and sometimes our schools haven't resolved that conflict. And so there is a trust issue that I think prevents us from moving forward and it keeps people sort of always looking, you know, out the side of their eye, like, are you going to do it right this time or not? And I think we have to acknowledge that and really be intentional about finding ways to rebuild trust with communities where we may or may not have prioritized their needs as effectively as other, whether that's reality or perception with people who've had bad experiences in our buildings. Um, we have to figure out how to rebuild trust and, and those relationships because change happens at the speed of trust. And if you were elected, what are some things that you would implement to address the trust gap? Yeah, so I honestly hate this word because people, I feel like it gets used a lot. Um, but we need to have a more transparent process. We need to have more information that's easily accessible and digestible for our community. And I think we also need to acknowledge that there are people in our community who went through our schools and didn't leave with the level of reading or math proficiency that they need. And so how do we engage them in these conversations when they're bringing their children to us? How do we make sure that they have a level playing field in terms of information or even knowing where to get information, being able to access the information so they feel comfortable and confident showing up at a board meeting? Or, you know, perhaps we go into their communities and don't always ask or demand that people come to us on our time and in places that are safe and comfortable for us, but that we meet folks in the middle. So some of the things that I think about doing is really, I think, particularly with the pandemic, really opening up virtual or different ways to to connect with communities, leaning into that more, thinking about how we engage some of our partners to make sure that the digital divide doesn't continue to go since it's not, you know, the sexy topic that everybody's talking right now, but how we make sure that there's actually access to Wi-Fi, broadband in all of our communities so people can access that. And I think it's also thinking differently about how we share information. Like maybe everything doesn't need to be a memo. 
that's written, right? Maybe we can use infographics or like other means of communicating with our communities so that they can get the information in a way that allows them to act on it and have agency in the process as well. Dependent and their staff, or is that the responsibility of the board? I love that. It's a great question, you know, because obviously the superintendent isn't responsible for operations. I think as a board member, we also set and give direction and guidance around what needs to be happening and what we are assessing and monitoring. And so if we're going to say that a guardrail in the district is community engagement, how are we monitoring that that's happening? How are we helping and equipping that? And I also think as board members, right, we are the liaison between the community and the superintendent. So how are we getting out into the community, making sure people know who their board member is, um, know what their board members do, and providing information to them that they need that we that's in our purview to be able to share. When you were saying that, it made me think about the city council, where I felt like generally, not everyone, but a lot of people mm-hmm. seem to know who their city council person is, but don't know which school district they live in. The city council at salary is somewhere around $70,000 a year. The school board salary is around $22,000 yeah. a year, but they're both considered, you know, important legislative oriented jobs. Correct. Why do you think there's such a gap between the understanding and the education of the city council versus the school board? I don't know that we, as a country, think about or prioritize education in the same way that we think about other sort of elections. Um, I always tell people, you know, like, I'm I'm running for mayor of Atlanta, too, but it's just kind of like at the school board level, right? Like, it's a citywide race. Anyone in the city can vote. Um, it has a lot of impact. You know, our school takes a sizable amount of our taxes uh, to run it. You know, I was looking at my property tax the other day. It's like 60% of it is going to APS, but a lot of people just are not tuned in, don't see how the school and the school district impacts their lives, right? You know, I love to tell people, you know, APS is the biggest landowner in the city and like people's eyes just like pop open, like had no idea that they had all that land. Um, I represented school districts for a period of time before I represented families And I would tell people, you know, I did construction law, I did employment, like I did contracts, like all sorts of things for the school district. And they're like, really? Like, I thought that it was just, you know, you guys are just education over there, like playing with kids. And I was like, I mean, one, that's a very important role, but there's so much more that happens. It is a billion dollar business that operates here, but I don't think we talk about it in that way with our communities. I don't think a lot of people know or understand, you know, what the school district does besides supposedly educating their children. And then if you don't have school-aged children, we found a lot of people just sort of tune out. Like, it's and it's not a thing. You know, on the, on the campaign trail, we've asked people, and they're like, oh, well, I don't really have kids. I don't have kids in school yet, so, like, that doesn't apply to me. And we have to really make the case for that. And so I'm not sure that we're doing as great a job of explaining to people how the district impacts their daily lives or how education and the education of the next generation impacts workforce, community, safety, security, all those types of things. And so I think that that's definitely a place where board members 
can be, you know, lean in a little bit more with their constituents and, and trying to figure out how we bring more people into the conversation of what's happening in education today. Is there anything that you think APS is doing right that's worth highlighting? You know, I am a fan of the cluster model and the go teams. I think there's places where we can improve in that process for sure. But I do like that one one of the guardrails really is about community engagement, make sure that we're engaging with our stakeholders, that we have a process in place for that to happen. Uh, I know that's part of the, you know, the deal that we made when we went to this charter system that we would share governance um, and push share that down governance with who, with the communities. So we were supposed to be moving more sharing responsibilities between our central office, as well as our school communities and the schools themselves. So there are governance teams that are supposed to surround all of our schools and make sure that they're leaning in and providing that input from the community with the principal as they're making decisions for what's needed at their school. And I think that that's really important because we have a very diverse district. There are very different needs in different communities. And I think people closest to the problems are usually the ones that are best suited to solve them if we provide them with the agency resources and support. And so I think that that is one thing that is um, a positive that's moving forward. I love that we also have an equity policy so that it's something that we should be thinking about and using in all of our decision making. You know, as a lawyer, a lot of times organizations, they're bound by their policies and again, it's a question of whether the policy goes far enough or if it has enough teeth in it. But the fact that there is one at least says that we're starting to think about that and how that impacts our students and the allocation of resources, et cetera, across the district. And then I think the other thing that I think APS has done well is there's a lot of alumni who are very proud of their schools, who want to lean in and make sure that the legacy that they experienced while they were there continues on. And so I think that there is a lot of community support for our schools, and we just need to figure out how to better connect them in ways that allow us to move forward together. Got it. You mentioned equity. It's on your shirt, every cluster of classroom child. For someone who maybe doesn't have kids in APS or doesn't understand why is APS focused on equity? Why is Why are you focused on equity? When it's a district that's pre pre predominantly black, why is there why does there need to be a focus on equity? Yeah, so we are a district that is majority black, um, but when you drill down into the data, what you see is that our students who are identified or perceived as black are not excelling at the same rate as our students who are white. And so, in terms of our student outcomes, we have not figured out how to make sure that there is an equitable education that's happening across the district. Our, our numbers are dramatically different. There's definitely a tale of two Atlantas happening in our school system, and this predates COVID. You know, a lot of people are always like, well, you know, COVID, but this is actually a problem that this district has had for as long as I've been here. I moved here in 2006 to teach. Um, it's been an issue before that, I'm sure, um, but it's still a persistent issue. So it's something that we need to figure out. What's the root cause of that? If you if you had to really drill it down and say this one or two or three things are causing it, what would that be? It's a hard and easy answer for me. You know, I think that we as a country have not resolved our issues with race. 
we have not fully leaned into the fact that every single life matters here. And I think some of those remnants of a history where it was illegal for a Black person to learn to read, where we weren't necessarily considered in the social contract when it started out with public schools, plays underneath a lot of um, what's happening, but it's the quiet thing that nobody wants to talk about or say. Um, and it, it makes sometimes the way that decisions get made, the fact that like income inequality is persistent in Atlanta and we see that also play out along lines of race, it impacts how people are able to quote unquote advocate for themselves. And what I would really say is whether we listen to them when they advocate for themselves and those things that happen outside in the society play out in our classrooms. So if you're someone not in Atlanta and you are, are looking in and you see it's a predominantly black elected establishment, right? So predominantly black elected on the city council on the, the mayor has historically been black for the past 40 years. Yeah. The school board is not, however. Um, so if you see that and you see the power structure, why in a city that is Black-led are Black students consistently, persistently failing? Yeah. Sava, this is a hard question. This is a tough <laughs> question. You know, um, I have two thoughts about this. There exist in the world times where you may have leaders who look like the demographic that they're serving, and we would assume that because they look like that demographic that they, you know, we should see different re results. I think there's a systemic issue, too, about where power truly lies in a lot of our systems, and all of us are affected by bias, right? Like, implicit racial bias is something that impacts all of us, regardless of what you look like how much you try to educate yourself around it. Uh, internalized racism is a real thing. You know, I, I've, I've seen this specifically play out with like school discipline matters. Young black boy makes a bad decision and we want to punish it. We want to, for lack of better term, like beat that bad decision out of them, right? Instead of leaning into them with grace, exerting any type of empathy, helping them to see how that decision isn't the best decision and giving them a space to come back. I, I distinctly remember being at a school where I had a student, not a great decision, possibly not completely aware socially of like what the implications of the thing that he was doing was. We got a plan for a behavior contract instead. Let's, let's, let's model what the appropriate behavior is. Let's make sure that they're doing this over a period of time. And the AP was not satisfied. AP. Assistant principal. Sorry. Thank you for reminding me of all this <laughs> education jargon. Um, was not satisfied and just kept coming back. Kept coming back for the family. Any little thing. It was like, here, see, and again, because you know you made that decision the last time. And I think it comes from a internalized culture of recognizing that our boys don't get the opportunity to make mistakes and wanting to, in one regard, protect them. But that protection isn't always safe. It's not always loving. It's not always caring. It's not always humane. Um, and so I think that there are things and times where we don't approach black and brown children 
the same way that we do children who don't identify as black and brown and that can lead to, you know, things like white supremacy culture being intact even while the people who are leading are not of that persuasion or don't necessarily ascribe to those things, but they have internalized it as the way that things are or have to be. Um, and so I think there's a, a collective liberation journey that we're still on as a people. Do Does it seem that charter schools like KIPP or, you know, some of these other, Drew, I know is another mm -hmm. popular one, that they are doing a better job of addressing these types of challenges around child education and whether it's discipline or making sure that they've got the reading and writing uh, skills that they need. Are charters doing better than traditional public schools? I don't know that we can make a blanket statement like that. Um, I've had experiences in charter schools and traditional schools. I have had to file complaints against traditional schools and charter schools. I don't think that we can say that just because the school is charter that it is doing better, getting better outcomes for students. I don't think that that's, I don't think the data supports that. And I could say that my own lived experience um, doesn't necessarily support that. I think what gets great outcomes for students are schools that have the resources they need to meet their their educators and their students' needs, schools where people feel happy safe, supported to show up every day and do a really hard job. Um, and I think that those are measures and metrics that are better indicators of whether a classroom or a school is going to do well than if it's organized as a charter school versus a, a traditional school. If you were elected, you'd be sworn in in January of 2024. So fast forward to January 2028, mm -hmm. what would you want to see Atlanta public schools look like? Yeah. I love, you know, when Dr. Battle was sworn in, she said that APS was going to be a district of readers. And I truly do believe that there's a lot of liberation that comes through literacy that allows people to make meaning of their world. And so in four years, Selfishly also, my four-year-old will be entering into third grade. I can't quite tell if he'll be in third grade. We're getting ready to start because of, you know, how the years go and the birthdays. But I would love to not be worried as a parent whether my child is going to be able to read coming out of third grade. And I would love for that to be a reality of wherever you are in the district, that we know that at a minimum, our kids are going to be reading on grade level. I would love to see a, a district where we have real meaningful engagement with the community and we're starting to solve not just bare minimum skills, like they're the, the bare minimum, I believe, that a child should get when we require them to show up for 10 years at school. Like I think at a minimum, you should be able to read and do math and write on grade level at a minimum, but that we're actually starting to see innovation happening in our communities because we have figured out how to solve some of the basic challenges that are not unimportant. These are big challenges. They're very important, but I think we have to get to the place where across the district in all of our clusters, we're starting to have 
we're starting to dream bigger about what a basic or quality education provides for children, especially as we think about the future of work and what technology is doing and how that is um, disrupting a lot of industries and changing those things that we are actually as a district starting to have more of those conversations and meeting it with joy and anticipation and not fear of where our kids will be. I would love to be able to say that we have a superintendent who is in their seat, steering this ship in the direction that it needs to go and is planning to continue to be here. And the board is supporting that because this constant change that we are doing keeps us in startup mode and we never get to move to growth and start to like, you know, conquer more complex challenges or see more successes. And so at the end of four years, I would love for people to be like, we're coming back to APS if they chose not to send their children there. I would love to see more organizations already embedded in the fabric of the community and working alongside with the community to solve some of those challenges and seeing ourselves really in a new chapter of what APS is um, and leaving behind some of the less than wonderful aspects that are a part of our history. And Koyo, is there anything that I haven't asked you that you want to talk about? I do have a whole, mo- a whole lot more questions, <laughs> if, you, if not. <laughs> no, fire away. I, I can't think of anything. Um, off the top of my head. I'll, I'll just add this one. Um, we know that there's been more participation and collaboration between City Hall and APS. But when you think at the state level, are there particular policies that you would like to see, whether it's from the governor, from the state uh, head of education? Um, what To what extent would you like to see the state in collaboration with or supporting the work of APS? Yeah, I mean, I would love for the state, for all of us to really fully fund our education system so that we can make use of those resources in support of a bold vision for what APS can be. You know, it is not the biggest district in our state, but it is in the capital, right? And when you think about businesses moving in here, when you think about all of this great industry and economic boom that's happening, I would love the state to be removing barriers that prevent us from preparing our students to take hold of those opportunities that are there. Um, Right before we were ready to tape this, the Lieutenant Governor came out today and said that he wanted to see teachers armed Mm. and he wants to actually fund that, um, backing a proposal to pay teachers a $10,000 annual stipend to voluntarily uh, carry guns in schools and go through firearms courses. What are your thoughts on that? I will say as a former classroom teacher, that terrifies me. I would prefer to work in a building where we have figured out how to make it safer and secure society-wise that I wouldn't need to be armed. Um, I think... Many of our teachers showed up, signed up to educate children and to not 
moonlight as as law enforcement also. And so the former teacher in me is like really disheartened about that because our school should not be places where we need to arm our teachers. I think the attorney in me has like lots of questions of what's going to happen if someone discharges. Yeah. Like what's going to happen. And, you know, we have all of this like sovereign immunity, quality, qualified immunity in Georgia that makes it very difficult for families to bring tort cases to be able to say you harmed my child in the school already. So what does that look like then if you now have a weapon that you could be using against a child? And then I think as a mother, I personally don't want my child growing up with like weapons just sort of being normalized like that in a place that's supposed to be protecting childhood. So I don't love it. (laughs) Just a final question. We know that not everyone who lives in Atlanta and is planning to vote has kids, Mm -hmm. right? Or maybe they're thinking, should I really vote in this election? What happens on the APS board doesn't really impact me. What do you say to someone like that? Yeah, those are my favorite people to talk about. Um, I always say, you know, one, it absolutely does impact you. And whether you have children in the system or not, whether you have chosen to take your children out and pay for private school or any other thing, you're still paying for it. You know, like you are still investing in this system. It is like that. um, I don't know if a stock is the best word, but like it's like having an investment portfolio where you're paying into it and you never check on it to see if it's delivering the outcomes for you. So one, we're already investing in this. I think if we're, I I like to know that when I invest, that there's a return on that investment. And I think for community members, that shows up in feeling like you have an environment, a neighborhood where you can live, work, play, learn, and do that with ease, um, feel safe and secure in your community. Uh, You know, what we do in our schools absolutely impacts the level of service that you get, the type of workforce that we're creating, you know, your property values, if we have to get that that specific to it. But it also means that we are able to continue to live in a free society. And so beyond just, you know, the economic aspect of the school district, which is, you know, very important to some people, like, you know, I think it, it matters to me too. You know, I, I bought in a neighborhood because I want to make sure that like that investment of a home is something that will return, will, will bring a return. But I think it also allows me to know that my kids will be in communities that are safer, that are more secure, that are more stable because people are walking around with hope because they have skills that they have gotten that they can take and make use of. It also means that collectively, you know, we don't talk about this enough about the national security concern that it is if we're not producing the next generation of thinkers and leaders who can create the next technology, who can think up the next big idea that captivates the world. Um, it puts us in a, a lesser position as, you know, leaders of the free world. And so I think whether it's economic or social, there is a huge um, advantage to paying attention to what happens in our schools with or without our kids or any kids in the system. Great. Now you get to look in the camera here uh, directly to the audience and tell them who you are, what seat you're running for, give them your information, like where to find you online and anything else you want to add. 
Awesome. Well, Saba, thank you so much, first and foremost, for this opportunity. It has been really cool to be in here recording this. Um, to all of you who are listening, I am Nkoyo F. Young Lewis, a teacher, an attorney, and a mom, and also a candidate for Atlanta School Board Seat 9. I am running to make sure that every cluster, every classroom, and every child receives an excellent education. And I believe that that is absolutely something that we can do with the generosity and the intelligence and the innovation in the city of Atlanta. We have a real opportunity in this election to turn the, 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 the page on what has been, to move past what is the status quo and actually dream and live a brighter future and vision for what's possible in the city. And so I would love for you to come out and vote. Early voting has already started. You can early vote all the way up until November 3rd. And then, of course, you can vote on Election Day, November 7th. I would love for you to stay along in this journey with me. I'm a first-time candidate, was not someone who thought I would run for school board. I started out as a classroom teacher, coached kids, became an attorney, um, and really was just busy doing the work of making sure that we had more access to opportunities regardless of where you grew up. And I am excited to take that experience to the board to really make sure we're designing a district that does just that. So I'd love for you to stay in touch with me. You can find me on social at Incoyo for APS. You can also go to my website, uh, Incoyo for APS.com. And I hope that we can continue this conversation. And it's a wrap. Thank you very much, Incoyo. Thank Great you. Great to have you on the show. Likewise. Likewise.